This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to Global Nashville with Carl Dean. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. And as a retired Navy man, I'm sitting in today with Mayor Dean to talk with Rear Admiral Brian Pekka, who is in town for Nashville Navy Week. Admiral Pekka, the senior officer president for this terrific community outreach effort, is Reserve Fleet Surgeon of U.S. Fleet Forces Command. That's the Navy element that trains and organizes the Navy forces provided to the warfighting commands around the world. He received his medical degree from Stanford University in 1988 and completed his residency at the Naval Hospital in San Diego. Admiral Peck has completed numerous assignments with the Navy and the Marine Corps, which relies on Navy medical staffing. His overseas assignment included a tour in Naples, Italy in the early 1990s and in 2006 at the height of the USMC combat operations in Anbar province in Iraq. He deployed with the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force. Admiral Peck has served as Marine Forces Reserve Force Surgeon, Medical Officer of the Marine Corps, and as Command Surgeon for the U.S. Pacific Command. We're going to talk with the Admiral today about Navy Week in Nashville and about what our Navy is, has going on around the world. Uh, Mayor Dean, you've got some uh, experience with Navy uh, Week in Nashville. Why don't you uh, take the lead? Well, thanks, Pat and Admiral. Uh, welcome to Nashville, and thanks for joining us today. Um, Navy Week occurred when I was mayor, and I remember uh, it being a really a fascinating time, and um, I think the people of Nashville enjoyed it. Um, tell us what you're bringing to town and what's going to happen here during Navy Week. Well, thanks. It's First of all, it's a pleasure to meet uh, both of you, a former Navy man and the former mayor. I appreciate the chance to be here. The Navy likes to send out teams to cities around the country that don't have a major Navy presence, just to show the Navy flag and to make sure that the folks in the community have a chance to interface with the United States Navy and understand exactly what it is that the Navy brings to them for their tax dollars. And what um, what type of things will you have here in Nashville? Who's, who's going to be here and uh, how are you going to interact with the public? So we've brought sailors from the USS Constitution, which is a great uh, outfit to bring. Uh, we've got in, uh, EOD experts, the bomb uh, experts that we've brought a team uh, with us for. We have the local Navy Reserve Center personnel that are out, and all of them are at various events and charities and civic groups uh, trying to uh, bring the Navy flag and show the presence, uh, as well as answer questions and just have a chance to interface with the public. Great. Well, it sounds like it'll be a, a, a wonderful week. Um, Pat, do you have any thoughts on Well, we uh, we sat in on a, an event yesterday, the USS Tennessee namesake of, uh, of right. our state. Uh, they've got the commanding officer, the chief of the boat, and uh, some crewmen here. And uh, I'm involved in a submarine veterans group, and we hosted them for a luncheon yesterday. And it was, it was great to see uh, sailors walk into the room and, and all the old guys uh, stand back and think of how, how young they're, they're all getting. Uh, talk a little bit, if you, if you can, about uh, the, the impact in the Navy's public affairs uh, image of having sailors uh, mixing it up in the community. They told us about going to the Grand Old Opry in uniform, and I'm sure they got some attention there. 
Well, I'm sure they did, but they've, they're going to a number of places, and I think it's great for kids to see sailors in uniform. That's not something that they would generally see on a daily basis in Nashville. I think it's also good for some of the civic leaders and the business leaders in the area to have a chance to ask real questions from people that are actually serving. So both men and women, a uh, chance to see the Navy band and what it does, uh, talk to some of the folks from the the Naval History and Heritage Command that are out here with us, uh, some of the some of the sailors from the Navy Meteorological and Oceanographic Command, and uh, and of course we've got recruiters out there too that are uh, having a chance to answer those follow-on questions that we hope will bring new sailors into the Navy for the future. I, I think some of the uh, show in the uniform off probably included uh, Lower Broadway and the Honky Tonks. And well, I wish I'd have been here for that. But <laughs> well, I think there's still ample opportunity. I understand this is your last <laughs> event of the day. Uh, for today. But uh, we also have the uh, the CMA Festival going on, and I, I don't suppose there's any accident that the Navy picked this week to, uh, to have. I'm that. sure that uh, had something <laughs> to do with the timing of this event, sure. Yeah, there'll be more people downtown in the next few days than um, at any other time of the year. I flew in with a handful of them and had to answer some of my daughter's questions about which country stars I saw. They're big country music fans and have been. Well, we we can suggest one place. uh, uh, One local restaurant uh, gave us some gift cards for the the Tennessee crew, the Union Common Restaurant, and uh, we understand Reba and Alan Jackson frequent that place. So if you're nice. We'll we'll keep that a secret among ourselves. <laughs> so uh, all, all in all, uh, Navy Week is uh, is just the opportunity for the Navy to shine in the community, get uh, some recruiting uh, word out, and and to share the Navy story uh, with uh, the community. I I saw some of the Navy outreach postings, and it, it looked like uh, the skipper of the Tennessee and some others were going to it looked like a a Rotary Club, and I suspect they're visiting other organizations to uh, to give the Navy pitch. Exactly, and I talked to the Kiwanis today. I'll meet with the Rotarians tomorrow. I'll get a chance to uh, visit with the folks at the VA. Uh, we just spoke with the Chancellor at Vanderbilt, and uh, I'm going to see Tractor Supply uh, oh, good. folks. Yep. I asked if I could see the, uh, <laughs> the folks from Cracker Barrel, but they couldn't fit that in, and because uh, <laughs> that's my favorite place in Tennessee when I come. So I'll be there tonight, probably. And uh, it's just good to see the local leaders, the people who actually do the service to the community. Uh, you know, it's, it's always interesting. You find people who've spent time either in the Navy or one of the other services, and there's an instant connection that exists there. And uh, it's just fun to see. Yeah. There are a lot of veterans in, in Nashville and, and in Tennessee with For sure. uh, Fort Campbell up the road from us here. A big, uh, big Navy community uh, as well, and uh, I was surprised when I when I came here how many submariners and others uh, wound up in Nashville. Uh, more than a few of them, uh, as a result of uh, bumping into a Nashville woman or a Tennessee woman somewhere along the line. Uh, <laughs> Captain Dennis Witzenberg, who was the the first skipper of the Tennessee, he was uh, at the luncheon yesterday, and he talked about how he got snagged and and landed here in Nashville. Uh, as uh, as a result, uh, we're talking with uh, Rear Admiral Brian Pekka about uh, Navy Week in Nashville. Uh, he is uh, here for a couple of days representing uh, the Navy, and uh, his uh, current position is as the Reserve Fleet Surgeon of the U.S. Fleet Forces 
uh, command. Uh, Admiral, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, your background, and, and then after the break, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Navy global operations. But uh, how did you get from where you were to where you are? Wow. Well, I started in Memphis, uh, went to college out in on the West Coast, and uh, then went into medical school. I had no intention of joining the Navy, but after my first year of medical school, I was already in debt, and I was <laughs> looking for some relief. And so I ran into a, a Navy recruiter who told me about a program, and the next thing I knew, I was in uniform back in Newport, uh, Rhode Island, going through officer school. And I remember standing in formation. It was a hot July day in Newport, Rhode Island, and I was we were in coat and tie. We didn't even have our uniforms yet. Didn't even know how to stand at attention properly. Somebody yelling at us, and I looked up, and there was a ship that was sailing past uh, some buildings there on the bay. And I remember thinking to myself, I love this. Why didn't I become a line officer? <laughs> and so that was my beginning uh, of love for the Navy. I. Uh, well, as a guy who went to OCS at Newport, uh, yeah. we, we did that for 16 weeks, and I think oh, you yeah. guys were there for like 10 days or something? No, we were there for 12 weeks. And, oh, uh, okay. It was a good time. Uh, I actually enjoyed that time, and I missed it when I went back to medical school. So I looked forward to doing a, about a month each summer at a Navy installation. And then when I graduated, I went down to San Diego, did my training in internal medicine, and uh, because I got to go straight through in my training, which was a little unusual for that specialty, uh, I didn't get a choice of where I went. They sent me to Naples, Italy. I never would have chosen it, but I absolutely loved it, had a great time there. It was a uh, difficult uh, work trying to do medicine to American standards in southern Italy, but uh, the whole experience was absolutely fantastic. Uh, now I got out of the Navy, went into the reserves, went into private practice, but within six months I missed my comrades in the Navy, and I came back in the reserves, and that was in Sacramento, and and quickly realized that I couldn't do that private practice model and the Navy Reserve the way I wanted to, so I found another job with the state of California that would allow me enough time and backup to properly do Navy Reserve work. I had no intention of deploying. It was just a chance once a month to go be with my Navy friends. But uh, soon after that, we had 9-11, and things changed a little. And since then, I've been on and off active duty a number of times, uh, each to a better place. And you spent a lot of time with the Marine Corps. I spent 14 years with the Marine Corps uh, because the Marine Corps doesn't have physicians or, or medics. They come from the Navy. It's one department, Department of the Navy, which is Marines and Navy. But uh, uh, I was a little reluctant. It's a different culture, even though it's part of the Navy. But when I went over and felt like I found some folks that I enjoyed being with, I understood the Marine culture maybe because of the way I was raised uh, and seemed to be accepted. And because of that, I just loved being with Marines and, and ended up staying on the, what we call the green side for 14 years. Well, we can we can probably go back in the recording here and remove the part where you say the Marines are part of the Navy. I, that, that might get you in trouble. <laughs> Tell us about uh, your deployment in 2006. Shortly after I came to my Marine unit, they said, you know, you're deploying next month. And I thought, what? 
I had no idea I was deploying uh, in just a few weeks. But uh, maybe having less time to think about it was was more valuable. So we uh, we got together. I was part of the leadership team for the battalion that went over. We uh, flew out of March Air Force Base in Southern California, landed in Kuwait, and then uh, took a little uh, fun flight on a C-130 into Iraq where we did not need to show our passports and uh, stayed at a couple of intermediate locations until we landed in Fallujah and began our uh, tour there, uh, which was... Uh, the whole experience was uh, difficult and fascinating and uh, amazing all at the same time. So my battalion had three different missions, and one of them was detentions. So we ran the detention facilities in Anbar province during that period of time, and there was four sites where we had detention facilities. And it was not the long-term prison. It was the initial spot where individuals who were either captured or needed to be interrogated were brought. And our job, my job, and my team's job was to make sure that they were medically cared for. So this was really before they were actually prisoners. And it was interesting to see the, the locals, some of whom were helping the insurgents, some of whom were just innocents that were caught up in the events of that day and um, uh, the chance to talk to those individuals through an interpreter for the most part although some spoke English was uh, a real eye-opener and was not the first time that I had been overseas and interacted with people from a different culture but it was uh, perhaps because of the intensity of, of what was going on at the time it was something that helped shape how I think of the world today. And I just, you know, feel sorry for people who haven't had a chance to do that because it just expands your view of the world to see how other people live, how they think about things, how they talk to one another, whether for good or bad. I think you can take a lot away from that. And I felt like, although it was among the most difficult months of my life, it was also among the most rewarding of my times there. So, How long were you in Iraq? We were there for seven months. Uh, we took over for a, from a Pennsylvania National Guard unit when we moved from Fallujah up to a different position. And then uh, we turned it over to uh, another Marine unit on our way out the door. But I, I did get to spend a lot of time on the road to these other sites, which helped me realize, just like the United States, there's different communities in Iraq, and that was interesting, too. To be sure. And from there, you uh, continued up uh, the ladder, and, and your uh, uh, credits include command surge in the U.S. Pacific Command. So you probably have uh, interest and experience in what's going on in uh, East Asia and, and some of the, the hot spots around the world. And, and now you're at the, uh, the Navy's Fleet Forces Command. Uh, what, what are your responsibilities there? Well, I have to tell you that when they asked me to be the command surgeon out at PACOM, I was a little taken aback because, first of all, it's in Hawaii, and I don't like the beach very much, <laughs> uh, nor am I a fan of Asian food. And they told me, you're going to spend about half of your time on the road to the different countries in this area of responsibility, and you're going to be interacting with their senior medical 
uh, people. So uh, I was not thinking this would be a good tour, but <laughs> just like all the others, it was the most interesting thing I ever did. And then uh, coming back, although I'm assigned at Fleet Forces, I spend quite a bit of my time up at the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery as we go through this transition period for DOD medicine, helping to shape, hopefully, how the Navy Reserve medical community is going to be organized and, and where they're going to be directed, hopefully toward the fleet. And that's why I have the linkage with Fleet Forces mm-hmm. Command in Norfolk. Interesting. Well, we're uh, we're talking with uh, Rear Admiral Brian Pecco, who's here in Nashville for Navy Week. We're going to take a, a break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Navy operations and uh, meeting national security requirements around the world. And we'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council. We invite you to share your thoughts with us in email info at tnwac.org. You can subscribe to the World Affairs Council newsletter on the website, tnwac.org. And you can like us on Facebook at Tennessee WAC, as well as follow us on Twitter at TNWAC. Don't forget to tell your friends about Global Tennessee and the World Affairs Council. This podcast and other educational programs from the World Affairs Council are supported by you and our sponsors. Are you interested in supporting global affairs awareness in your community? Visit tnwac.org for more information. Welcome back to Global Nashville with Carl Dean. I'm Patrick Ryan of the World Affairs Council, and I'm sitting in with uh, Mayor Dean today in a conversation with Rear Admiral Brian Pecka, U.S. Navy. He is Reserve Fleet Surgeon of the U.S. Fleet Forces Command, the Navy organization that puts together the sailors, ships, aircraft, submarines, and more to fulfill missions around the globe. Uh, Admiral, thanks again for being in Nashville for Navy Week and for joining us on the Global Nashville Podcast. My pleasure. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the world and and uh, how the Navy affects that and how uh, what's uh, on the global landscape uh, affects our Navy. Uh, in your several decades of service, you've been assigned overseas, including a tour in Iraq with the Marine Corps at the height of uh, combat operations. We we talked a little bit about uh, your your experience, but how does that impact? Navy deployments and uh, Navy men and women, the, the kinds of assignments that uh, uh, the post-9-11 world has, has brought to the Navy. You know, even before 9-11, but certainly after that event, the operations tempo for the Navy has just picked up tremendously. And so we have, uh, at any given time, 25% of our sailors uh, forward deployed in one part of the world or another. That uh, sometimes can create strain on families. At the same time, we've got about a third of our entire Navy's fleet at sea at any given time. And the stress on those platforms uh, can be tremendous. Uh, It's a behind-the-scenes type of a presence. But since the world is 70% water and 90% of the world's trade goes by sea, it's important that we maintain that kind of presence around the world. We live in a global neighborhood, and not all of the neighbors are necessarily friendly to uh, that uh, idea of free trade. And also, one of the things that it's occurred, um, well, going back for a while, but it's really become much more pronounced, is the Navy plays a huge role in humanitarian relief. Um, whether it's Bangladesh or other places where there have been uh, terrible uh, natural Japan, disasters, the earthquake, the tsunami, yeah. and uh, well, the Navy Haiti. is you know first and foremost there to to help. 
That actually has become one of the pillars of our national uh, military strategy. So as these things happen, and remember that uh, the vast majority of the world's population lives close to the ocean, close to the sea, these events are going to be close to the sea. And the ability to get in and assist often depends on the ability to come from the ocean. And that's something the United States Navy does very well. How much of a demand is that put on, uh, you know, you talked about op-tempo, but adding that extra mission with the same number of hulls and, and people, there must be some impact there. Yes, and I think that most sailors and Marines who are going out on a deployment just expect that one or two events are going to come up that require their participation. And so while they're unexpected, they're actually, they actually train for those kinds of humanitarian missions as part of their workups and as part of, they consider it part of their mission set to be ready to respond. And I think that uh, we don't always hear about every single one of those requests that goes out, but uh, at any given time, we have sailors that are doing exactly that, either providing the assistance themselves or more often providing the transportation and the security that allow many of the non-governmental organizations to get in and do the real work and the enduring work that has to go on in those sites. There's been a lot of talk, um, a lot of books written about in the last few years about the about the Pacific and about the, the rise of the, the Chinese uh, Navy, and how has that impacted what, what the Navy does? I think quite a bit, and I've seen some of those changes myself just over the last few years. For China is a country with a long, long history, and they see themselves, even the symbol for China is, is a box, would look to us like a box with a slash through the middle, meaning it's the middle of the world. That is how they see themselves, and they've seen themselves that way for centuries. So uh, their view of things is not an American view that has grown over the last few years, but one that's endured for centuries. They would like to see themselves as leaders, if uh, partners perhaps, but really leaders in the world. And they've taken a long-view strategy to try to achieve that, including um, a very intense and, and I would have to say, fairly effective modernization of their Navy. So while they may not yet be a global uh, naval power, they certainly are uh, a regional naval power and probably the strongest naval power uh, of any other country uh, in that part of the world, maybe in any other part of the world. Right. And there are particular areas, South China Sea, um, Indian Ocean, where they're an increasing presence, um, and, and they see that as basically their, their neighborhood. Well, they do see that as their neighborhood, and if you look at the Chinese map as drawn by China, it includes something called the nine-dash line. You may have heard that term. It, it was literally invented on a map uh, around World War II time, but they point to that as justification for including all of those South China Sea Islands as part of China. They see that as their territory, and therefore they patrol and want to maintain presence uh, mainly by their Navy, but also their Air Force uh, in that area, which they consider part of China. And they're militarizing some of those uh 
rocks and shoals that are a little more than... Not only are they militarizing rocks and shoals, they're building new islands out in the South China Sea, literally building islands from sand that they dredge up and, and then create a, a, you know, a presence there. So Navy's response is uh, freedom of navigation sailings through, uh, a large through part the neighborhood? Of, a large part of what we do is ensure freedom of the seas. So after Bretton Woods, uh, you know, our promise was we'll guarantee free trade. Your job is to trade, and that's all we ask. Uh, and that has successfully maintained the peace you know, since World War II, uh, at least as far as global world wars go. Uh, but there are other countries that don't see it that way, and China may be one of those countries. And there are non-state actors, uh, thinking of the Indian Ocean pirates, uh, modern-day pirates and others who would take would seek to interfere with trade. And well, piracy is pretty old and is just it's just uh, you know burglars on the global scale. Yeah. And so uh, when we when we put the police out there, they go away or they move to some other place. But piracy is and has been a problem in uh, various parts of the world, depending on how active uh, the resistance to that is. But you consider ninety percent of the world's trade goes by the ocean, and that's a pretty lucrative place. Uh, you know, Sutton's Law, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of that piracy is, uh, at least, uh, you know, it, it occurs everywhere, Strait of Malacca and uh, the uh, eastern Atlantic off Nigeria and other places, but uh, most notably in uh, uh, the Gulf of Aden and, and the, off the coast of Somalia. Otherwise, Tom Hanks wouldn't have one less movie uh, to have made. Uh, and in that neighborhood, speaking of freedom of the seas, uh, the Navy is uh, keeping open the Strait of Hormuz from threats from Iran. And uh, we now have uh, not a showdown, but at least some provocations uh, that have been in the news lately. Can you talk a little bit about our uh, presence in, in the Middle East? You know, in the last administration talked about the, the swing to Asia, but we s still seem to have a lot of uh, interest in the, in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. Well, there's no doubt that the Asian... Uh, area of responsibility is very important, and those countries are growing and assuming a larger part of the world's trade. But uh, the other parts of the world haven't gone away. And so you see a little bit of a resurgent Russia that's trying to reassert itself, uh, particularly in the naval realm. But you also see countries like Iran that uh, uh, often, like China, see themselves as countries that have been slighted on the world stage and would like to extend their influence uh, a little bit farther out. And when you consider that so much of the world's oil transits that body of water, uh, you can see why it's important for us to ensure that it, it continues. Not so much because we get our oil from that region, but because other countries do, and their economies depend on that, and all of these all of these economies are interlinked. It's a global economy now that we we help to ensure uh, it continues on a paced. You talked about Russia. Um, it, it seems every now and then there's a flight of uh, Russian bombers off the coast of Alaska or flying down to Cuba or, or some other uh, place that they hadn't been for a long time. Let's talk a little bit about the Russian force modernization and their expansion back into uh, Blue Water Navy and uh, doing increasing operations. Well, you remember after the fall of the, uh, of the curtain back in the 1990s, uh, 
Russia was pretty much off the world stage, and their military was in disarray, especially their navy. They had several serious accidents with their submarines, and they took that as a, as a personal uh, impetus to improve. So as the country has redeveloped and regained its footing and attempted to reestablish some of its uh, previous glory, they've put a lot of money into their navy. And it's a, it's a fairly capable Navy, has been for many, many decades, really, even going back before uh, the Soviet Union. Russia was a naval power. Uh, and they like to see themselves that way. But they're handicapped, in a sense, by their geography because they don't have a lot of ports that they control. And so they make sure that they are very... Uh, good at the ones that they do have, and they like to expand and see if they can can exert a little influence to gain uh, other ports. Part of the rationale for their Syria uh, involvement, the, the ports and the well, I think there's multiple reasons for their involvement in Syria, but that you know has to you know again has to do with extending their influence and and building their own network of partners around the world. And there's now I don't know tension is the right word, but there's now clearly competing interests in the Arctic Ocean, too, uh, where because of warming and more uh, likely to be able to pass through it's it. more navigable now. And yeah. more resources there that people are starting to show up there. Well, they've always assumed that that was just part of, <laughs> part of, their, part of their little uh, part of the world that no one was interested in. But as we've explored a little more, and they've explored as well, there's a lot of resources in the Arctic that traditionally haven't been easily accessible because of the ice pack. And as that tends, as that's receded over the last few years, other countries have looked to, hey, maybe we ought to have a little piece of that action, or maybe we can cut our costs by transporting our goods through that, uh, through that former ice pack. And so what we have is a Russia that is looking to uh, claim some of those goodies for itself and, and uh, you know, exert some control over those new sea lanes that are developing. Yeah. Well, what, um, in terms of um, your experiences, which um, would be very relevant to people of Tennessee since you're from Tennessee and came from, you got a big river in Memphis, but uh, you didn't have any ocean. Uh, you joined the Navy and you have certainly seen the world. What would you say to a young person who is could be anywhere, a small town in Tennessee or Nashville or Memphis, and dreams about seeing something different? Um, what kind of opportunities are there in the Navy for a young person? I always like to use the line that I'm just a simple country doctor from Tennessee, <laughs> and it gets a laugh. But I would tell them to go. Go away. Go somewhere else. I tell my kids, you can't stay at home for college. You're going somewhere else, and you're going to live on campus because you need that experience to broaden yourself. That is part of your education. And I think seeing other parts of the world is a tremendous opportunity to broaden the way you think. So I would encourage them to do that, whether it's the Navy, the Army, or the Air Force, and not just join and stay in one place, but look for opportunities to go to other parts of the world and see how they live. It's Even if you come back and you say, this is the greatest place in the world, why did I ever leave? 
you won't really say that. You'll go, now I understand why it's the greatest place in the world. So I would just encourage people to get out and, and, uh, and serve in the military. And I use the word serve deliberately because when I was a little boy, I like to tell the story. I was a, living in Chicago, and I would run out to get the newspaper every morning and bring it back in and study the sports page on my hands and knees. I think I was seven or eight years old. My parents let me drink coffee, and I'd be studying the sports pages. And then I would turn to what in my family we euphemistically called the Irish sports pages, which some of you may recognize as the obituaries. And why <laughs> I read the obituaries at the age of eight, I have no idea. But I noticed that the family members who prepared that obituary were always very anxious to tell about their loved one's service in the military. They would show their picture, maybe a 40 or 50-year-old picture of their loved one in uniform. And they were proud of the service that their loved one had given. And so I would say to young people today, you know, take the long view. Do something for other people. Perhaps consider the service, because when you're old and you're sitting in your rocking chair at Cracker Barrel, uh, you can think, I did something with my life, and I actually served other people and not just myself. That's wonderful. We're talking with uh, Rear Admiral Brian Peck from uh, the Navy, who is here for Navy Week in Nashville, and uh, we're coming to uh, towards the close of our uh, Global Nashville with Carl Dean podcast, uh, but we have one more important question to ask. Army, Navy, what the heck is going on? <laughs> so I have a son in the Army and, uh, and a daughter-in-law in the Army, and I'm in the Navy. My father was in, in the Army for a short stint, and I have a nephew at the Air Force Academy. So we're a joint family is okay. the way I like to put it. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll look to December to see if we can turn the tide on that. Uh, Admiral, uh, it, it's been a pleasure having you here. Any last thoughts that you'd like to share with uh with our Global Nashville podcast about uh, the Navy's uh, interest in coming to uh, to Nashville and, and showing the flag and, and all these uh, fine young sailors walking around town and going to the Grand Old Opry and maybe a few dipping into Tootsie's or, or somewhere else uh, down on Lower Broadway. Well, thanks very much again for having me here, and thanks for the work that you do to try to bring a view of what's going on in the world to the people of Tennessee. I, I think that historically— Tennesseans are a pretty smart crowd, but they can benefit from broadening their view to the entire world. And so uh, thanks for the work that you do with that. Thank you for uh, being with us, and thank you for your service. And um, I hope you enjoy Nashville while you're here. Honored to serve and glad to be here. Thank you. Well, you've been listening to the Global Nashville with Carl Dean podcast brought to you by the Global Tennessee podcast service of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, we hope you uh, will become a regular listener. You can find uh, this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, uh, contact the Tennessee World Affairs Council if you're interested in becoming a member or perhaps uh, providing a gift. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan educational charity, and we rely on members and donors uh, to keep our operations moving along. Uh, again, we've been talking with Rear Admiral uh, Brian Pecka of the U.S. Navy about uh, Navy Week in Nashville, about Navy Global Operations, and we thank him and the Navy for coming to town and showing off uh, some good-looking summer white uniforms. They do look good, don't they? <laughs> good-looking uniforms. Thanks, and uh, we look forward to uh, having you back next time. Thank you. Thank you.
This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy. I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org slash podcast for more information.